All day has been really an exceptional blessing and ministry to my own heart. I thank those of you that have prepared. I thank all of you interested in singing and participating even in the congregational singing. I do have to say that um, listening to that violin and flute number, after a little discussion uh, we had this afternoon, uh, was, was very fitting. Um, the name of that was, what, Children That Make Up, what, what's the name of that song? When He Cometh, uh, the children that make up the crowns in His jewels. So that's about the, the Lord's heart for children and saving them. And I thought it was certainly appropriate for those instruments. I was, I was commenting on the fact that, um, you know, we have, we obviously have a, a great proportion of brass here, as you've noticed, right? Because you can hear when they drop out, in particular trumpets. And um, so um, typically there'd be way more strings than brass in an orchestra, but we have what we have. And so we, I, I just was commenting on the fact that some instruments are better... Um, are more appropriate to play certain songs. And where I was a youth pastor, um, there were a number of different instruments, and there was enough to have, like, a whole flute ensemble. And sometimes they would have as many as, like, a dozen flutes playing in the flute ensemble. And one time, they got up and seriously, in a flute ensemble, tried to play, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. And I was just like, certain songs ought to be banned from certain instruments. There's nothing mighty powerful about a flute ensemble, but it's very appropriate for when he cometh. So I was glad for the, the uh, flute and violin playing something appropriate tonight, and, but uh, thankful for all of you that uh, have continued to use um, gifts that God's given, and in some cases, lessons from years ago, and continuing to to serve the Lord, and I trust there'll be just increased vision about that and increased investment in that and serving the Lord. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Tonight, Ephesians chapter 6, and we are turning our attention once again to activities on the part of children that contribute to the glorification of God. And if you've not been with us on Sunday evenings, this is part of a broader series in our philosophy of ministry, and the more narrow series is that we believe in a significant part of the Great Commission must be investing in God-honoring marriages that bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in the book of Ephesians, we've underscored several times now that where we're at in the book emphasizes that the Bible's teaching on marriage and the parent-child relationship is not primarily for the sake of, you know, having a healthier relationships and more enjoyable family times. But my motive for listening carefully to what God has to say about my role and my obligation in the home must be because my desire is to glorify God. And on the other side of this extended section from Ephesians 5, really 21, right through chapter 6, verse 4, on the other side of that is the admonition to get ready for battle. Put on the whole armor because God's purpose to glorify himself, as we're thinking of it here in this context, God's purpose to glorify himself through God-honoring marriages and homes 
is under attack. The devil's attacking marriages. The devil's attacking the, the parent-child relationship. And, and so families in the battle for the glory of God is really where you find this teaching in the book of Ephesians. And so we want to come here again tonight and consider what kind of conduct on the part of children. We started with conduct on the part of wives and then conduct on the part of husbands. And last week we started with Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 and the conduct on the part of children that contributes to God being glorified. And that conduct begins, as you can see in verse 1, with the first word of instruction, children do what? children obey and if you were with us last week i trust you remember that that word obey literally means to hear under it's two-part greek word the first part is hear, so give attention but then arrange yourself under that is bring yourself in submission to your parents words and the position in which you are to do that continuing on in verse one is in the lord children obey your parents in the lord That's a reference to the child's relationship to the Lord. Because you know, as the rest of the verse says, for this is right. Because you know this is right in the eyes of God. Because you know this is the will of God. And this is pleasing to God. From a position of your own relationship to the Lord. And really even as a demonstration of your own relationship to the Lord. Arrange yourself under the authority that God has delegated over you. And there is a spirit that is to accompany that. In verse number two, the spirit that accompanies all truly God-glorifying obedience is what? It is this word honor. And the Greek word that is translated honor means to estimate the value of an object. Give, Give a high opinion of this object. The Hebrew word in the fifth commandment that says honor your father and mother, that that word means to give weight to something. So when we honor someone, we're giving weight to them. We're holding them in high esteem. We're elevating them to a position of importance and reverence. And when children practice these activities and with this attitude, God is glorified in them. And we pursued uh, right through the text last week. What I want to do tonight is is just to back up and ask a question that I want to say from my years as a youth pastor in a larger setting um, to pastoring to my own children growing up and going through various stages has been a question that many people have wrestled with. And the question is, how long is a child, a child in God's eyes? I mean, this is, chapter 6, verse 1, children obey and honor and with the promise of blessing, all right? But is there any difference in the obligations, for instance, of a 6-year-old, all right, from an 18-year-old? Or what about a 21-year-old who is still single? Do they have any remaining obligation to their parents? And I'm using 18 and 21 because, you know, in our culture, those are kind of where we recognize some new liberties. We recognize some new responsibilities at those ages. But our children who are 18 and our children who are 21, are they still under any obligation to their parents? 
And wrestling through those questions is important not just for the young people involved, right, but for the parents of these young people. How do we navigate this this stewardship of these lives and, and my responsibility in them? So what classifies you as a child? Okay, what, what should our thoughts be about those that are late teens and, and into their early 20s in particular? And one observation that I would make from, from this text is that the children under discussion here, all right, I think are still children that are in their parents' home. Okay? Part of the reason why is that the same word, we have children obey your parents, when the instruction is given to fathers, look at this, and ye fathers provoke not your okay, children. So I think it's the same children under discussion. What does he go on to say? But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's indication that the children he has under discussion here are those that are still in their dad's home, for instance. Those that dad is still bringing up, as it were, in his home. And I, I will say this, that there certainly are exceptions in the will of God, but it is normally the case, in, in keeping with Genesis 2 and verse 24, that a man leaves his father and mother when he what? When he leaves their home and cleaves unto his wife. The, the new union forms the, the new home. And, of course, that doesn't change the fact that a son is still a son, right? And, and we have seen and we will see that honor is for a lifetime. But the children that are responsible to obey, right, to hear and arrange themselves under their parents' words in Ephesians 6, I believe, are those children that are still in their parents' home. Right now, beyond that observation... One of the difficulties that we have from here on out is that there is no direct New Testament reference which indicates a set age, okay, that just kind of transcends cultural distinctives as kind of marking out the transfer from childhood to adult. And I have actually uh, put in considerable effort in trying to track that down, and anytime I I get a new resource that maybe there's a chance I'm going to get something new there. You know, I, I, I chase it down. And, and looking up cultural records, I, I haven't come up with anything definitive. Uh, one source stated that it varies from within Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures, but that it was typically determined by the father himself. Okay? When is a child no longer a child? One source said, you read all the cultures, and it's when dad said Okay? You're a man, right? You're an adult. I give you these, the, the rights and privileges of that. Some of the sources indicated that you can find references all the way from the mid-teens up to age 25 in some cases. So I, I'm saying that to say there isn't anything definitive, like where you know this term is, was used this way in the first century, right? But without anything definitive in the New Testament, I, I would encourage us to consider some Old Testament precedents. And, and I'm having us consider them because they're not just isolated and limited. When you go back and say, well, is there anything we could, we could 
you know, kind of gather together from the Old Testament, it, there is really some striking evidence about this, right? And, and in the Old Testament, there is a consistent pattern of God's treating 20 years of age as a significant reference point for men, at least, in Israel, right? I'm not going to have you turn to all these. I'm going to give you a number of references if you want to write them down. But Exodus 30 and verse 14 says, Every man that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So from 20 years old and above, men in Israel were responsible to, to, to act as an adult and give an adult offering of their own okay, to the Lord. That's Exodus 30, verse 14, same, almost exactly the same wording, Exodus 38 and verse 26, and there would be others. In Leviticus 27, there is a discussion of the offerings that should be given from each member of the household, and distinctions are made for newborns up through age five, then from five years old up through 19, and then you go from age 20 and there's no distinction that is made until you've reached the age of 60. So again, uh, there's another example of kind of recognizing 20 to 60 as kind of, you know, the, the prime adult years. Right? In the first chapter of Numbers, First chapter of Numbers, there are 19 times a particular, there is 19 times a particular phrase is used. That phrase is 20 years old and upward, all those that are able to go to war. I mean, 19 times in one chapter, 20 years old and upward, all those that are able to go to war. In Numbers chapter 14, and I'm just kind of moving through some some significant places there. But in Numbers chapter 14, when Israel, remember, turned back in unbelief from entering into the land of Canaan. When they turned back in disobedience that is rooted in unbelief, the Lord proclaimed that, and the word as we have it, is that the carcasses of all those that were 20 years old and upward would die in the wilderness. They would not enter into their little ones and their children would enter. They would have to endure the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so, again, I'm, I'm pointing to the fact that there appears to be kind of a benchmark concerning obtaining adult privileges, gaining adult responsibilities, and adult accountability. And it is dozens of times mentioned there. Right? In addition to that, reference point of 20 years old there are some other um, illustrations that i think we we have to conclude are there to nurture us giving considerable weight to parental leadership even past past the 20 years of age all right i mentioned some examples last week but joseph was second in command in egypt when he saw his father Jacob for the first time in years, and he bowed in reverence to his father. Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 2, it's really remarkable. Solomon was actually sitting on his throne 
as the king of Israel when his mother entered the room and he got off his throne and he bowed to his mother. But you go even beyond those. Um, Isaac was at least 30 years age and tracing out some of all of what's taking place in Genesis uh, says that he's at least 30. Some have suggested that he was closer to 40 years old as a single man when he yielded to his father Abraham's leadership concerning a life's mate. And Isaac was thrilled with the wife that he ended up with. And he knew God's blessing in that marriage. Isaac's youngest son, Jacob, had what uh, was blessed far beyond that of his oldest son, who? Esau. And one, uh, one fact that the scripture draws attention to, and you could think about multiple um, circumstances and events and anecdotes between uh, Jacob and, and Esau, but one of the things that the Bible draws attention to is that Jacob followed the instruction of his mom and dad and went back to, make, to his homeland to marry uh, a wife of their direction. And Esau married women of the Hittite tribes that surrounded them. And Genesis 26 says that his wives were a grief to his parents. Samson told his parents that he wanted to marry a particular woman from a Canaanite tribe. And his parents expressed reservation, and he just said, get her for me because she pleases me. And the fruit of it, I don't know, you can even call that a marriage, but a fruit of that marriage was seven days of turmoil before he left his honeymoon feast in a huff, and she married another man. There was a young widow by the name of Ruth, and she gave careful attention. This is unique, isn't it? She gave careful attention to her former mother-in-law about the pursuit of another relationship. And God blessed her following the counsel of her mother-in-law to a wonderful husband named who? Named Boaz. Now, brethren, you could just say, well, you know, those things are all incidental to the stories, but they're there over and over and over, and the Spirit of God saw fit to put them there. Why would those details be emphasized? Why, why would details be there about even those that are past 20 years of age when they follow the counsel of leadership, parental leadership in their life, being blessed in their marriages, and when they disregard parental leadership in their life, they end up with horrible marriages. Those have to be there because the Spirit of God wants us to consider okay, the lessons to be learned of that and nurture in us the, the whole mindset of giving considerable weight to what our parents have to say about the most significant decisions in our lives and to warn us about the consequences for not doing that. And I want to have you go back to Proverbs chapter 1. If you were with us last week, we considered Proverbs chapter 1 is one place where we can see some of the incentive that the Scripture gives for children to do right with their parents. And all of us, okay, acknowledge 
that being told what to do or having to submit to leadership is not easy. Uh, when Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with what? With promise, that it may be well with you. Okay? There is incentive, extra incentive given there. Proverbs chapter 1 is one of those places. Now, I'll just backtrack and rehearse for us what we already know about Proverbs and remind us. Proverbs is written to who? Okay, it's, it's the one book in our Bible that is specifically written to young people. I mean, my son is the intended recipient about 21 times. Hear ye children, the instruction of a father. Chapter 4 starts and, and it goes on. And when you really look at the themes in the book of Proverbs, you come to realize that it's not primarily talking to toddlers, okay, or to even younger elementary. The themes that are addressed to these children are really those of the older teen years, young adolescent into, again, what we're talking about, this same age group, older teens into their 20s, even to those that are starting their own families. That's the kind of young person. And the purpose of it, just look since we're here at verse 2, the purpose of this book is to know or to impart what? Wisdom, which in Proverbs is skillful living. Okay? How to live skillfully and enjoy the blessing of it. Good understanding, chapter 13, verse 15 says, Good understanding gives favor. But the way of the transgressor is, okay, from, from your early days, as you head into your adult years, God wants you to live skillfully and enjoy the favor of that, as opposed to the hardness that comes. And in this book that is written to young people that want you to enjoy favorable circumstances by living skillfully, living wisely, the foundation of all of that is verse number seven, the fear of the Lord, your own personal relationship with the Lord. And we could, we could spend some more time in, in working that out, and we have. But now, for the first time in verse eight, there's direct, direct exhortation to this son. And verse 8, the first exhortation is, my son, do what? All right, well, isn't that where obedience starts, right? <laughs> my son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. And there's where the rub gets in, right? Moms that kind of lay down the law. And sometimes we bristle at that. Dads that want to talk to us. And moms that have some, this is the way it is, right? And we, and we can kind of bristle at that. And so this is where we looked last week. There's incentive. One of the incentives is that first part of verse 9. They shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head. This is ornamental jewelry. This is saying that young people who do right by their moms and dads are more attractive than those who don't. It literally enhances your attractiveness. And then, the end of verse number 9, they shall be chains about thy neck. And we looked at Joseph, we looked at Daniel. The chains, the gold chains about the neck were a symbol of delegated authority. Young people that learn how to listen and respond to and honor their moms and dads, they're attractive even in the eyes of others, and doors of opportunity open to them. They get to rise to the top. 
Now, that's where we were last week. Now, look at verse 10. Here's the, that's the first admonition in this book about living skillfully and enjoying the blessing of it, is do right to your parents. Second admonition in this book is, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Now, you can go through and read the kinds of things that these sinners were going to entice the young person to, right? And clearly, these are, I'll say this, these are bad dudes, okay? (laughs) Bad men, bad women, all right? But I will also tell you this, that Bible students and scholars and commentators, I I just picked up another one this afternoon that I hadn't looked at during this week. And, and looked at their comment on this this afternoon, and the heading they give to start verse 10 is peer pressure. Peer pressure. All right? And what Bible students and commentators say is that in, in, in this case in particular, the second, the, the order and the flow is part of what we're supposed to learn. After talking about, hey, the foundation is your own relationship to God, the fear of the Lord. First thing you need to know about skillful living is do right with your mom and dad. And the second thing you need to know about skillful living is the primary threat to doing right to your mom and dad is going to be the relationships with peers and the influence of peers. Now, young people, we need, we just need to say, all right, um, the law of the Lord is perfect, making wise the what? Making wise the simple. If I want to wise up and live, and I haven't been there, and I haven't experienced it, but one of the things I just need to take note of is that there is a special vulnerability, even in my older teen years, and into my college years, and and, and, and I'm not meaning any of this to just be a blanket condemnation of anything else. My, my kids have um, had one in dorms, others that are involved in social life. They've been at camps and they've worked there. And I'm, I'm all for those things in their rightful place. Okay. Um, so this isn't forbidden to ever leave your house. Okay. But what this is saying to, to you young people is this. You need to recognize that you start to get a little more freedom to go off to this activity or you get to go off to this camp or you move into a dorm or you spend some time in, on, on, a, you know, on a campground and you get around your peers. And one of the things that you need to recognize is that an inappropriate amount of influence and weight given to your peers can actually be a threat to your relationship to your mom and dad. This isn't saying don't have friends. This is saying keep things in their proper order. And if you, listen, if you have friends that are consistently putting bugs in your ears, so to speak, and they are consistently giving encouragement for you even, and in some cases, even when you've kind of expressed, well, I don't know that my parents would be thrilled about that, and they actually start to tell you, look, your parents aren't here you're 18, you're 20, you're your own person. And in some cases, they're actually adults that are feeding our young people that kind of stuff. 
There's actually people telling you, well, your parents are back wherever, and you're here, and you know what? You've got the right to make your own decision. You don't have to listen to who your parents say you should be dating or not dating. You need to make your own, yeah, you do need to grow and develop some of your own convictions in, in entertainments and a lifestyle arenas. Absolutely. We want you to do that. We're encouraging you to do that. But listen, if you keep listening to people tell you that your parents are just too restrictive and they're too narrow and, you know, they're too old-fashioned and they're too traditional and, and you need to loosen up and you need to get past some of that, the Bible's counsel to you is watch out. Okay? That's at least yellow flag. That's at least big caution about those kinds of friends. Because the first and primary threat to the relationship that you ought to have with your parents is that of peers that would actually try to part you from your parents. Okay. The, kind, the kind of friends that, that would be a help to you is the kind of friend that would... Um, say, hey, I'll pray with you. The kind of friend that would say, have you thought about this kind of passage? And is the kind of friend that has said, where's your mom and dad on that? I, I think you'd be really good if you send them a note. Give them a call. Talk to your mom and dad. That's a good friend. friend that will pray, friend that will counsel, and a friend that will encourage you to stay close to mom and dad, not encourage you to part from them. And, you know, before that whole section is done, and that, that's not even the point of working all the way down through this, but look at, look at verse 18. It, it's just interesting. They, these, you know, these peers have enticed to come out and let, let's uh, have a great time. But verse 18, they lay in wait for their own what? They lay in wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. It's like, you know what? They're... They're, they're walking into a trap that's going to be devastating for them. They're going to ruin their own life. Don't follow them in it. Don't follow them down that path and end up in the trap with them. Continue to rest in the Lord to use your parents that he's delegated to you in, listen, in this kind of transition time. This transition time from childhood to increased adult privileges and adult responsibilities and adult, adult accountability, in this time, continue to give weight to them. And this is going to be a, a very stretching time. And part of, part of what's going to be stretching is that now we've spent this time and, and we're still at a place where if you said, Pastor, all right then, is 20, you know, I mean, at, at 20, what things do I still have to obey my parents in? And what things do I get to say on my parents, <laughs> okay? Or whatever it is. What things should my parents not demand of me when I, I, I'm, I'm, I can't draw that line from the Bible and put list, you know, up till the day before your 20th birthday. Dan, are you turning 20, Daniel? Daniel's going to turn 20 on the 22nd, so watch out for Daniel. 22nd. <clears throat> okay, there, there's no list like that. But you know what that does? That, that's just going to continue to challenge a young person to maturity, okay, to sobriety, 
to faith and the following principle, even when not everything is spelled out in a, a hard line in the sand or not everything is dotted I and crossed T. And along with just continuing to give weight to your parents in general, I, I think it stands out in the Bible that one of the things to give weight to your parents in particular is this area of relationships and a life's mate. The Bible continues to give encouragement, involve them, seek their counsel, um, yield to their advice. It will go well with you if you do, and you could be setting yourself up for big-time trouble if you don't. That's the Bible's counsel. Hudson Taylor, you know, is a great missionary and founder of the China Inland Mission, but he often stated in reference to marriage and missions work because he would get applications to join the China Inland Mission or somebody counsel, and, and it would be these two things about, should I go into mission? Should, uh, um, you know, who should I marry? And he said about those two things, he said, I have never known disobedience to the definite command of a parent, even if that parent were mistaken. That was not followed by retribution. Conquer through the Lord, he can open any door. That is actually taken from a letter. He wrote that advice to multiple young people. Conquer through the Lord, he can open any door. You continue to ask the Lord, if need be, to change the mindset and the, and, and the posture of your parents. And he was not just spouting off theory. He served for multiple years in China as a single missionary. And there are indications he had to see the Lord actually remove considerable opposition before marriage. It seems to be that it was probably from Maria, his, his, his later-to-be wife. But it appeared that her parents opposed their marriage for some time. And, and the Lord removed that and changed her parents' heart. And they were married for 40 years. But even before that, before he left for China, he was 20 years old. And he faced a considerable crossroads. Um, he was convinced that the Lord had called him to China. He was in London, continuing to prepare for that work, when his father called him and asked him to return home to care for their family farm for two years. So that his father could actually pursue uh, business and even some evangelistic pursuits connected to his business. And the, his biographer wrote about Taylor, and I'm quoting, filled with surprise and almost consternation, Hudson hardly gave due weight to the wishes of his parents. And he describes some things from his journals there that, that he, could, he could not believe that they would ask him to leave off preparations for the important work of, of missions in China. And the biography doesn't include his initial response, but it does include a letter that was written a short time later. And I want to read a few excerpts tonight. So Hudson Taylor wrote, My dear father, I write to say in the language of the prodigal, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight am I no more worthy to be called thy son. Conscience has troubled me about the answer I sent to your inquiry as whether I was willing to come home for two years should you go abroad, and I can no longer rest without entreating your forgiveness. Though I mention the sacrifices I should have to make in coming home, 
I said nothing about those you have so willingly made for me, the sleepless hours, the anxious thoughts, the expense to which you have been put, the education you have given me by which I'm able to procure all the comforts I now enjoy. This is the return I have made of all these kindnesses. Father, I have been an ungrateful son. I am deeply sorry. Will you forgive me? If you still wish me to come home for two years, I will do so willingly, nay, with pleasure, as it will give me the opportunity of showing the sincerity of my repentance. Afterward, if the Lord will, I shall hope to engage in his work for China. Believe me, dear father, your affectionate son, James Hudson Taylor. So when he counseled, right, when he counseled others, honor your parents and conquer through the Lord, He's not spouting off theory. He knew what it was to prove that. Again, I don't, I don't have um, all the answers, but I do think that, that the lack of definitiveness will really drive young people that want to honor God about this to, uh, to your knees, really seeking the Lord for direction and trusting Him. What I do know, and I'm, I've waited to this point to come to this, all right? What I do know that I can state with dogmatism for all of us is that God intends for the spirit of honor to be demonstrated to our parents as long as they live. And I want to have you turn to Matthew chapter 15. This, this I want us to see. Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at a scene in the life of the Lord where he rebukes the Pharisees about, about their failure to honor their parents uh, by relieving their needs in their old age. And notice verse, thir- uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3. So it's the Lord talking to the Pharisees. He answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Right? In Mark's gospel we read that they pronounce the word Corban. There's actually a, a title to this. It is a gift. It meant that their goods were gifts to God. And what, what was happening is they were actually like going through this show of piety by, by saying all of my material possessions are gifts to God. And because they are gifts to God, I can't use them to meet the needs of my aging parents. So that had, again, a superficial appearance of piety to it. But Jesus knew the wickedness of their hearts. And what does he say? He, verse 6, you're honoring not your father or mother. He shall be free. And notice, continue on. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Look at the rest of it. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're talking big about honoring me, but in their hearts they're not doing right to their parents. They're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what Jesus said. 
And when Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, If any provide not for his own, especially they of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We typically say a man needs to provide for his wife and his children. That's actually not the context. I think that's true. But that's not the context of 1 Timothy 5. The context of 1 Timothy 5 is us providing in particular for our, our widowed mothers in their old age. That's the specifics. The principle is, if a man won't care for his aging parents, he's denied the faith. And the ones that do it with a superficial piety, can you imagine how offensive that is in the eyes of God? And the fact is, the Lord didn't just teach this by verbal instruction. He, he taught us as well to honor our parents, not just by his instruction, but by his what? By his own example. We, you know, I have actually, I have one book that's called The Seven Sayings of Christ from the Cross, and you can, you can find other uh, significant studies of the seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. But you think of that, of all the things that the Bible records to us as taking place in in the hours before the darkness and then the three hours of darkness and then on the other side of that from the time Jesus was nailed to the cross of Calvary and, 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 and lifted up for all to look at. There's seven things that are recorded in the totality of the Gospels and one of the seven expressions was Jesus communicating that his mother would go into the care of who? It would go into the care of the Apostle John. As he's dying on the cross, the most significant event in all of world history, Jesus providing for our atonement. But he demonstrates by example honor and care for his mother when he was going to be gone. I, I um, have a mother that... Um, ended up having to, uh, to raise me without a dad in the home. My dad left for the first time when I was 11, came and went and left for good when I was 12. And I'm thankful for things that the Lord did in my dad's life later. But um, in those years of being a teenage boy without a dad in the home and newly in that state, there, boy, there was a lot of dynamics and and uh, my, my mother frequently had to really exhort me to honor her. And, and she would follow that up with corporal punishment. And, and she instructed me to honor her. And when I didn't, she let me feel the pain of that. Okay. But the day came a few years back when I was my mother's pastor. And I got a phone call, and my mom said, I'd like to schedule an appointment with my son and my pastor. <laughs> I said, okay, mom, I think we can handle that. <clears throat> and what she started to tell me was that um, both of her parents were aging and in, uh, and in poor health, and they were either going to have to go to a nursing home or somebody was going to have to move in with them. And out of all her siblings, she was the one that had um, the, the best opportunity to do that and started to tell me about even some things that God did circumstantially to, 
um, to about finances and so on. That, and and uh, boy, I mean, we we have grandkids, and my sister's family's up there, and they have a they have a grandchild, and I'm absolutely certain that it tore my mom's heart up at one level to move a thousand miles away from her kids and grandkids. But she moved back in with her aging parents so they could stay in their home as long as they could and that so they could continue to go to their home church as long as they could. And it's a wonderful treasure to have a mom teach that and insist on it and then exemplify it. And in that, she's reflecting the Lord Jesus, okay, who did the same. And there's relationships change as sons and daughters move from, from childhood to adulthood. And then we go through seasons of life with, with, our, with our aging parents. But brethren, all of us that have parents that are alive need to be reminded that honor is for a lifetime. And, and I really am burdened that in some cases, those of us that have children in our own homes... And we may be knowing some struggles, even with our children honoring us, in part because they've watched us dishonor our parents. And we need to continue to, to exemplify. And if there are unresolved issues, no matter what our parents have done, who they are, and, and, and I've already mentioned in my dad's case, there were years of having to navigate that that were not easy. And there was distance that had to be there because of some dynamics for a time. So I'm not saying this is all easy. But, but I am saying no matter what they've done or who they are, if my spirit isn't right to them, I need to take responsibility for my lack of honor. And I need to humble myself. And I even need to ask for forgiveness. Number one, it's right in the sight of God. Number two, it'll be helpful in my own parenting. And number three, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then, those of you that find yourselves in, in these mid-teens to early 20s, I'll just come back and say that you actually have the greatest opportunity that you will ever have to demonstrate the work of God in your life in this arena. Because the lines aren't all crystal clear. You're developing significant, and in many cases, you're developing kind of well-studied, well-reasoned personal opinions. You're more than ever aware of the social dynamics and the opinions of others and, and, and times where your parents are saying, but you're not so-and-so. You're in this family. Okay? This is your last name by God's design. And, and you're, you're aware that that's kind of separating in some cases from, from others. And in that arena, you also have the opportunity for considering the higher motives for the decisions you make. And, and you really are at the place of the capability of making significant decisions of faith in God. And it's at those places where, where your opinions go against your parents' counsel. 
and where your parents' expectation goes against the grain of even other Christian homes. It's at those places where obedience and submission are demonstrated. And as an older young person, obedience and honor at the most difficult times will have to come because of your own relationship with the Lord. That's why you have such a great opportunity right now at this season. I'm mentioning Hudson Taylor. I, I told part of this when, when we were in a different series. But they, he ended up marrying Maria Dyer. But for years, it looked like to them, it was not going to happen. Um, the leadership in her life um, just didn't, didn't grant permission for that. And she went to her room one summer evening um, alone and in great sorrow. But with her Bible in hand, um, she turned and um, the Lord led her to Psalm 62 and verse 8 that says, Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. And I want to read you something she wrote seven years later. She said to Hudson, I marked it at that time, and the light-colored ink still remains to remind me of that night. My soul wait out only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only, he alone, always El Shaddai, the God that is enough. And Maria Taylor, all alone, facing disappointment, clung to that and trusted in the God who was enough. And brethren, I don't know, you know where we might be in life and we take it out of this context or, or right in this context. I will say to all of us, he will always be enough. No matter what the relationship dynamics are, he will always be enough. Trust him and prove it. If you need to, put tonight's date on it. <laughs> Psalm 62.8, if that's the verse. Put a date on it. Put something of the circumstance. And then prove it. And be confident that he'll prove himself to you. And you'll be able to testify it to it for his grace and his glory for years to come. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I do want to encourage.